0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. February 9th, 2023, the Biden Gets Frisky edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined from... New Haven, I think, no, maybe still California, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School, where it is hella early. Hello, Emily.
1: Hello. Thank you for the people who sent me nice California messages.
0: And from New York City, where it is only early. John Dickerson of CBS Primetime. Hello, John. Good morning. Hello. This week on the GabFest, what did we learn from President Biden's State of the Union on Tuesday besides the fact, the very interesting fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene looks exactly like the White Witch from the Narnia movies? Exactly. That was my revelation. Then the Chinese spy balloon and the state of U.S. China relations. Then a question. You did not expect to hear on the GabFest this morning. What is menopause? We will talk to Sue Dominus about her fascinating story about why Medical America does such a poor job dealing with a condition that affects half of the world. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. And before we get started, we are hiring, we are looking for a researcher. If you love the GabFest, maybe you should apply beloved Bridget is leaving after an amazing term with us and we need to replace her. This position is remote. You need to be available on Wednesdays and Thursdays. It's about 15 to 20 hours a week. It's, it's uh, pretty flexible within Wednesday and Thursday, except being available on Thursday morning for taping. And it is paid, of course, if you are organized and self-directed and politically aware, if you're a fast and thorough researcher with good news judgment, and if you have some writing experience or even some production experience, that, those would be a, a plus. So, to apply, please email a resume and a brief cover letter that clearly outlines your availability and interest to gabfest at slate.com. Email us at gabfest at slate.com and use the subject line gabfest researcher. Marjorie Taylor Greene heckled with liars, shouts of liar and hoots. Uh, And yet, yet this felt very much like a return to normalcy at President Biden's State of the Union on Tuesday. The president was polite. He was full of praise for Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. He called, he talked about his bipartisan, bipartisan's accomplishments. And he was frisky when called for, as you can hear in this clip.
3: I'm not politely not
4: naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look, folks, the idea is that we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. Folks. So, folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now. Right? They're not to be stopped. All right.
0: John, if you were running Biden's reelection campaign, would this speech have heartened you or discouraged you?
4: Well, if I were running his reelection campaign, Um, I would have to probably figure out what the FEC regulations would be for the in-kind contribution that Marjorie Taylor Greene gave his re-election campaign. You know, he always has said, uh, don't judge me against the almighty, judge me against the alternative. And the alternative in this case, of course, is the most um, MAGA part of the Republican Party. And um, what he wants is to say, sure, I've done a lot of great things, but... There's really this other thing that if they get in control, it's going to be chaos and mayhem. And to have such a, a perfect um, representation of that during the speech um, was really helpful for him, including not just her outburst, but Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, unsuccessfully shushing Marjorie Taylor Greene and others. Um, at least four times, if not more, during the speech um, was really helpful. Um, I think, you know, in the end, how much does it matter? I think that we saw in the 2022 midterm elections that one of the things that helped Democrats was obviously the issue of abortion, but also the feeling among voters that even though they cared a lot about the economy and didn't think the Democrats and Joe Biden were doing a great job, they were more fearful in many cases of what would happen if Republicans took control and that that was a real weight um, on the Republican Party. The Republican Party doesn't seem to be trying to fix that problem. And and that was on display again. But Biden's bigger problem is that going into that speech, 35 percent of Democrats in, I think, the post poll and 38, maybe in the in of Democrats in the AP poll. But consistently, Democrats say they don't um, want him to run for reelection. They don't want him to be the party's nominee.
1: I mean, John, isn't that poll number the opposite of judge me against the alternative? Right. It's you're asked in the abstract, do you think it should be Biden? You're not thinking about what will happen if there has to be a primary and the Democrats fight it out or really what the alternative is.
4: <laughs> I think it's a gr- really great point. It, it seemed to me and maybe this is putting too fine a point on it, but there in the Republican Party. Donald Trump could do no wrong. Um, you know, no matter what he did, his approval rating in his party and his and the desire for him to be reelected, including up until this day very, you know, is still pretty high. Um, And Joe Biden, on the other hand, has low numbers for a party when he's done an extraordinary amount of things that Democrats care about and done it in very, very difficult conditions with tiny margins in Congress, um, uh, after a pandemic, managing um, an invasion of Ukraine that has reset the entire world order. I mean, there are things, if you are a partisan Democrat, that you should be uh, delighted with Joe Biden about. Now, it's very important to recognize a distinction between delight with Joe Biden and desire to have him have a second term. There is possibility, although I don't really see this in the polling either, but there's a possibility that there's a kind of a gold watch feeling, which is awesome four years, Super first term, you know, one term president. Um, thank you for your
0: faithful service. Let's get another in there. Right,
1: because you don't have to think about who else who's next in the faithful service.
0: No, well, you kind of do in some sense, because she was well, sitting right behind him, the person who was the most <laughs> likely next. And that's I think that's the problem. I think the problem with the gold watch is that there's a feeling among Democrats, which we can talk about for a second, may or may not be fair that the new person who could become a senior manager here at, at a white house corp, um, Kamala Harris maybe isn't the right person for the job. And, and so you gotta, you gotta keep the old guy on a little bit longer. And it, there was this New York times piece this, this week that we talked about, um, just about her failure to find her place. And Emily, I wonder if you feel like this is, you know, this is, if this is just kind of sexism or racism, I mean, she doesn't seem to me that different in her, manner and her her kind of awkwardness and say al gore was in during the clinton presidency but but she certainly has not um no one seems to be saying oh it's so great that we have her sitting there because we can just plop her in the job and and we'll run a strong campaign and that'll be awesome
1: it's true that al gore was awkward he also didn't become president so there's that uh, i think that there is racism and sexism that's threaded into some of the responses to Kamala Harris, and that's inevitable. It's really hard to tell how much that's what's happening. Certainly, um, she has had some missteps. I feel like that's the proper pundit word to say. I don't think it is only racism and sexism. I mean, the most devastating thing in that New York Times piece, which was not helpful to her, was that The reporter said that people who the Harris folks asked them to call for positive quotes also do not want her to be president, whether they said so on the record or not. And that suggests that there's like a relatively wide feeling of skepticism in the pool of people who know her, people who would be the kinds of people that Harris would want to have quoted. And, you know, I know from writing about her, she is extremely careful about such moments. I'm sure they didn't put that list together in some kind of like random way. And so I found that quite telling.
0: John, one of the things that Biden did, in fact, the thing that has gotten the most attention is, is to, and we played a little clip about this at the top, is to provoke the Republicans on Medicare and Social Security. A, is he right that they're trying to gut Social Security and Medicare? And B, was that, uh, was that, effective politics
4: no doubt that it was effective politics was he right well it depends what you mean okay so the republican party has had a part of its part of the party has for a very long time believed that you show you are a serious conservative if you have plans for um private accounts with social security um or trimming medicare or perhaps getting rid of it altogether. Um, that's been true from the 90s all the way through to George W. Bush, who, who um, founded the beginning of his second term on private accounts for Social Security. Paul Ryan's budget um, when the Republicans took over in 2011 during the second or the third year of Barack Obama's first, pres- first term it was all about restructuring um, entitlements or earned benefit um, programs. Um, That is much less so the case in the Republican Party now, which is an evolution and some would say a devolution. Some conservatives would say it's a devolution because these programs are uh, going bankrupt and they need to be uh, dealt with seriously. Um, But there is uh, Mitch McConnell has said we're not going to be doing anything with Social Security or Medicare. Kevin McCarthy has said in the context of these debt ceiling negotiations, it's not on the table Um, There are randos who have said things, Ron Johnson and um, Rick Scott have suggested sunsetting, all suggested two things, making um, earned benefit programs, entitlement programs um, discretionary so that every year or every five years they have to be renewed. They don't just go on. And this is the the idea is that if you reassess them, you can manage their spending because they're such a huge portion of the budget and they go on without um, sort of being able to be messed with the leaders of the party have affirmatively said these two guys don't represent the party position. They're out on the wings. So in the Democratic Party, when some people talked about defunding the police, Joe Biden said, I'm not on the defunding police bandwagon. In fact, I think we should increase... Um, funding for the police, and that's not my position. And many Democrats said, you know, when Republicans say Democrats want to defund the police, they're being unfair to Joe Biden, and they're using the extreme positions of a portion of the Democratic constituency to characterize the entire party as being weak, and that's to scare voters. This is essentially the same thing. Um, Now, is it effective Totally, Donald Trump did this all the time, and we saw how effective it is. Which is, you say something you know isn't exactly true. In this case, what Biden said was they want to. There, there are people who want to touch Social Security and Medicare as a part of the debt ceiling negotiations. They just, they they just aren't. However, what he's done is then. <laughs> do what he did in the in the actual room, which was get every uh, many Republicans to say, Oh no, we're never going to touch those two things, which protects two earned benefit programs that Biden wants to protect. Um, and w- what you do is you say something you know is is not exactly so. And then the other side freaks out. And in the ensuing freak out, and Biden did this the next day in Wisconsin, you get to keep talking about how members of their party want to, you know, gut these programs. Um, And so you put your message out there. So now at the end of this week, the number of people who think Republicans want to touch Medicare and Social Security, I'm sure will increase, Uh, will net increase, even if the press did a thousand fact checks the way they would have had Donald Trump said a similar thing.
0: Emily, what did you make of the Sarah Huckabee Sanders rebuttal to the State of the Union. Now, I know just because you get to do a rebuttal to the State of the Union, it doesn't mean you're the next president. See Bobby Jindal, see Marco Rubio, see any number of these responses. But her remarks, which were really dark culture war stuff, it was all woke mob, CRT, not even critical race theory, CRT, like that's now a, you just say CRT. I really am perplexed that Republicans think this is the message they should put out to the broader public at a night when lots of people are paying attention, not to focus on inflation, inflation, also inflation, and more about inflation.
1: Yeah. And maybe the Chinese spy balloon thrown in there for a little extra dash of pepper. I agree with you that i found that mystifying i mean obviously they wanted someone young they thought the fact that she could talk about um tucking her three children into bed would be helpful and i think she's a communicator right it's like hard to tuck your job. children to
0: bed when there's a woke mob outside like honestly <laughs> it's very difficult it's very it's so noisy it's hard to read them it's
4: true the woke mob
0: Good, white noise books. machine
3: available yes, for nine ninety nine. it's true you're right
1: you don't even have to be yes true i've been watching the last of us so that idea of a mob outside is feeling very present to me right now yes i agree with you that makes things hard and yet sarah huckabee sanders soldiers on i was struck by her crazy versus normal framing because when i first thought i thought oh that's so smart of her that she's going to distance herself from some of the crazy elements in the Republican party oh no how naive <laughs> i like the idea that i even had that notion for one half second
0: slate plus members bonus segments of course on the gabfest another slate podcast you can become a member by going to slate.com/gabfest plus this is a week i think i would definitely join because we're talking about a really interesting topic we're going to talk about judge shopping which is a alarming new trend in american in american law and american jurisprudence and uh, i'm excited to hear what emily is going to say about it so uh, join slate plus today no ads on any slate podcasts bonus segments bonus episodes of some slate podcasts and uh, you should just go to slate.com/gamfest plus and do that
3: Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank. Members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
0: The Chinese spy balloon floated gently above the fruited plain from the mountains to the prairies to the oceans, white with foam, where it was finally shot down and we presume largely recovered by the United States military. The balloon has not really, I would say, caused a crisis in U.S.-Chinese relations because U.S.-Chinese relations were already pretty bad. And it didn't seem to I think that both sides are are cautious about about escalating anything. Uh, And 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 so, no, there's been no, uh, you know, no one's shooting other things down. There hasn't even been particularly heated rhetoric about it. Uh, there 's been you know the usual
1: well wait a second didn 't Anthony blinken cancel his visit
0: that 's what it counts yeah, he canceled a visit, yeah, but I don't, the chinese didn 't seem happy about way. that the chinese didn't the chinese di- weren 't happy that he did it, and it, but it wasn 't like that it doesn 't feel like it was that big a deal for him to cancel his visit. It felt like oh we 've got to cancel the visit, but nobody seems to be in a pose right now of let 's escalate everything. I feel like both countries we can talk about this they 're not in a mood to be friendly to each other, but nor do they want to have much more escalation of hostility than what already exists. And so what I, I guess my question is, is is this a moment of opportunity or a moment of danger for U.S.-China relations, Emily?
1: I think it's a moment of hitting pause. It seems super not cool that China's sending these balloons all over the place, as it turns out. And, you know, first... First, I wanted to just wake me up when this is over with this story. Like, really? Partly, I think just the word balloon is confounding in the whole thing because it makes it seem like some object or the boy with a French balloon in Paris, like fairly benign and um, some just like sort of white... Um, drifty thing. But then, of course, you find out that it is better at hanging around and potentially spying on facilities than something higher up in the sky that you would assume they would be using because it's closer and it goes more slowly. And it actually, it seems pretty sinister that these balloons are floating around in our airspace, the airspace of other countries, including Japan and India. Not clear whether the Chinese have sent this to Europe or not. I mean... I don't know. There's just something there's something daring, but in a bad way about doing this, something kind of blatant. Uh, And so it doesn't feel to me like it's a great sign that the Chinese are getting caught with their pants down. They expressed regret, which I thought was interesting and smart since they don't usually do that. But then they kind of veered off into lying again. And that's how I mostly took it as a bad sign about China's leadership. I think you're right that the response in the United States has been kind of proportionate. And so it doesn't seem like it's launching a huge crisis. But I also wonder about this as um, really like what China's. I mean, were they just doing this because they were getting away with it for a few years and they thought it wasn't going to be detected?
0: Well, it sounds like from the reporting in the Times today, this program has been going on for several years. Uh, but it also seems to be, uh, it's being done by an arm of the Chinese military that's kind of, it's, it's, it seems to have a lot of latitude, maybe isn't checking with the home office every time they launch a balloon.
1: Right, but what's up with that? Like, that's your military. They're supposed to be checking in with the home office.
0: I don't know. I mean, don't you think that the U.S. military and like the NSA and, and our spy agencies are doing things that they don't, not every time they do something, do they they call Biden at home and be like, oh, by the way, you know, we figured out a way to make all Iranian computers speak Arabic instead of Farsi. I mean, like, I doubt they every I doubt every single message, every single act of, of espionage is test checked. And probably they've been doing this repeatedly. And it just happened. This one just happened to be timed in a way and they happened to be caught. It is kind of incredible that they it's taken so long to get them caught.
4: For me, I um, felt like the entire balloon thing was a a sad kind of contemporary set of problems we have with talking about these kinds of issues, which are only going to get worse in the presidential context. It's basically a big shiny thing up in the air that we can all talk about and that's right in front of us. And so there was all of this rushed attention, news coverage to the balloon and when's he going to shoot down and blah, 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 blah in a complete vacuum of information. Um, and then, of course, the partisan response, which, um, you know, would have been just as fast and, and condemnatory uh, if the parties had been reversed about why didn't Biden shoot it down and um, and he's weak and all of that. I mean, we, we have no idea what, um, A, the success of this balloon in, in getting any information that was actually useful and good. The secondary thing is we have no idea whether... This, on a net basis, might have been a huge boon for U.S. intelligence, a boon that comes from two different things. One, they flew around the damn balloon as it was piloting over the United States and took lots of pictures of it and figured, like, saw how it operated. Now they've got a debris field of all the stuff that is in the ocean that they're going to pick up and look at. So there may be a net increase in value. Secondly, while it was flying and the Chinese knew that the U.S. knew it was up there, the Chinese undoubtedly said lots of things in channels that the U.S. or other intelligence agencies monitor, and this used to happen with terrorists all the time, that once you spotted them, you let them hang out for a while so you could watch them and listen to them. So there's a chance that they got more intel that way. And yet the com- and on those, that's all speculation. But the point is, we don't know what the actual intelligence benefit or harm might have been. And yet the conversation has taken place in this ridiculous way. And then just finally one, two other things. One, there's this question, does it make Biden look weak or strong? In the end, at the end of the day, whether Biden is weak or strong with respect to China is going to be determined by so many other things than this damn balloon. Secondly, the Republicans who've said this makes Biden look weak and China's going to take, you know, the measure of the man from this. The Republican Party is right now having a conversation about whether it continues supporting the Ukrainians against Russia. The signal that Xi Jinping takes about America's willingness to f- to keep China from being adventuresome in Taiwan is going to be much stronger from whether America sticks with the Ukrainians after things get ugly after a year than whether Joe Biden waited a couple extra days to shoot down a balloon over, this, you know, over the United States. So it just, the whole thing took place in this cockamamie other world, although, of course, it's incredibly fascinating because who doesn't love balloons
0: i thought i would i i have always been so soft on china and everyone else has just gotten hawkier i i've gotten hawkier and hawkier too but it used to be used to be like oh there was a position to be soft on china there's no position left to be soft on china you can still be you can be soft on russia weirdly you can be soft on this this truly like you know dangerous adventurous meddlesome country that has invaded ukraine And it's okay to be soft on on them for some reason. But there's no, in American politics, there's no soft on China position left. It used to be the standard American political position on China was you say super hawkish things when you're running for office. Then once you're in office and you have to deal with China, you are very conciliatory and you work towards a kind of close economic integration. Now, it's just like you run hawkishly, you rule hawkishly. The, the china position of the biden administration is if anything it's more skeptical and more antagonistic to china uh and more more protectionist and and than than the trump position was um which is interesting
4: right and la- and um while managing it more publicly more gently than 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 Trump did. Also, it's not crazy that shooting a thing out of the sky over populated areas is maybe not a super great idea, um, especially
1: once you find out that the undercarriage was like a bus, three like three heavy. buses. I thought. Yeah, I mean, even in more other so. words,
4: let's imagine you know that this was a huge intelligence disaster for the United States, and that the acute and the acute moment of disaster struck between when they knew. And when they shot it down, in other words, this moment of waiting for however many days it was, was the greatest national security disaster. Okay, maybe possible, but we have no idea. We have no idea. And yet that was the presumption of people, you know, who had um, no information and also when there were also lots of other possible alternative explanations and or alternative outcomes. Um, it does seem one thing that does seem kind of weird, though, is this sort of the 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 narrative um which at first was oh the Pentagon thought it was kind of a like a weather thing and, and now it's it's a part of a global balloon network to spy on um, you know, countries all over the world. Like the, the Pentagon has had a messaging problem for sure, trying to explain what they knew and how serious to take this balloon.
2: On Death Sex and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things.
0: I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving.
2: Listen to Death, Sex, and Money
5: wherever you get podcasts.
1: I am so excited to introduce my dearly beloved colleague Susan Dominist, the Gabfest. Sue, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. It is a delight to be here. You are here because you have written an excellent story for the New York Times Magazine called We Have Been Misled About Menopause. I have been listening to you talk about this story for many months as you dug into all the research. I have learned a ton, both from talking to you, but really just from reading the story where all of your knowledge and wisdom appears. How have we been misled about menopause? And tell Us, in particular me, the perimenopausal
5: woman among us, other than you maybe. What do we need to know? So, for many, many years, um, people, especially throughout the 90s, believed because of a couple of really big and you know, well done observational studies, that um, women who took hormones were going to have lower rates of heart disease, and maybe all sorts of better things too. like that it was just considered kind of this miracle drug that was going to keep women essentially physically young. But it had never been studied in randomized controlled trials. And people like the breast cancer activist Susan Love had real concerns, as did other women's health experts that Maybe we really just didn't know, and maybe women who were really healthy and went to the doctor a lot and had a little more money were the ones who were taking hormones, and that was why we were seeing better health outcomes in those women compared to women who um, maybe didn't get to the doctor so often, weren't asking for those things. So there was a big movement and a lot of testifying before Congress to say, we need to do a long-term randomized control trial. Not only were women not even included in trials for a very long time, um, because actually there was a fear that hormones were going to like confound the research, but there had never been any kind of long, extensive trial that just studied women. When Bernadine Healy became the first female um, president of the National Institutes of Health, this was one of her big initiatives. And by the way, she definitely was camp. Estrogen is going to make us all healthier. You know, she absolutely believed it. But and she wrote about it and she advocated for it. She was, a, uh, I think, a, an expert in cardiovascular disease. But she was smart enough to recognize that we needed to do the trial. So they started this trial, and the question was in postmenopausal women, are we going to find that taking hormones um, makes women healthier specifically, that they'll have fewer that they'll have less coronary heart disease? and after the study was supposed to last um, many years, but they stopped it after five, um, which was that that alone was a big deal. They stopped the study and they held a huge press conference, and they said, You know, stop the presses, not only are hormones um, not gonna be protective against coronary heart disease, but we're also finding in the women in this arm of the study, which was women who had uteruses and took estrogen and progestin, which was a synthetic progesterone, we have found in these women an elevated risk of coronary heart disease, but also uh, a 26% increased risk of breast cancer. Um, and that was very, very, very big news and not what was expected. And I think the fact that they stopped the study made a lot of women think, and therefore you have to stop taking hormones. Now, in the actual press conference, one of the lead researchers said, you know, for the individual woman, this risk is not is not very big at all. Um, across a population, it, do, it is very meaningful. And then what basically happened was a series of um, headlines and interviews. I mean, the press bears some responsibility for this, but, you know, people went on talk shows and said, yes, there's a 26% increased risk of breast cancer and a 50% inc- increased risk of, um, I believe it was clot, and um, but also increased risk of stroke. Not so much emphasis on the fact that there was decreased risk of um, fracture, but, I I think there's a general sense that it was hard for people to understand what a 26 percent increase risk means for a woman who is herself between 50 and 60, pretty healthy, very low risk, and it is a very small additional sort of excess. It's a very small addition to your baseline risk, is basically what it boils down to. So they weren't going on talk shows and saying, the way to think about this is for every additional 10,000 women who take hormones, at least estrogen and progestin, we know that an additional eight will get breast cancer. And, you know, what I think about that number a lot. Um, because for me, it doesn't sound that um, low, actually, eight and 10,000, like that's not, not nothing. And maybe if you are already have an elevated risk, it's something you'd think a lot about. But People I know, I talk to them about it, and they say, eight in 10,000, I like those odds. You know, I I can live with that. I'm having horrible hot flashes. I'm not particularly at high risk, or I am at high risk, but I can't take it anymore. And that's something that they can kind of metabolize. So I think the main issue with the WHI was just a communications failure. There was this sense that we've stopped the study, and therefore, you should stop taking hormones. And and there were people who were saying that, certainly, but I think mostly... um, what people had, the confusion was, should you take hormones for general health, you know, to prevent heart disease? Absolutely not, because there's risks attendant with it. That's different from saying, if you're suffering menopausal symptoms, and you're really miserable, and you're really uncomfortable, or you're not even that comfortable, but you're comfortable with this amount of risk, you can stay on your hormones. So after this big press conference, People basically started uh, just, you know, the number of prescriptions dropped precipitously. People were flushing them them down the toilet, like OBGYN's phones were ringing off the hook. Women were in a panic. Um, I think some doctors really felt guilty because they had been prescribing this to women who were 60, 70, who'd never been on hormones before, and they were telling them it was going to make them better. Now, if you're over 60, your baseline risk for some of these diseases is higher than somebody in her 50s. And so those risks, you know, maybe are a little more meaningful also. So there's a lot of confusion. Um, it's hard, it's very hard to explain risk to people in a in a doctor's appointment. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it basically the number of women um, using hormones just dropped dramatically over the course of many, many years, it kept going down over the course of many years until about 2010, 2011, we know. And then I, you know, I, I, I think probably numbers picked up s- at a certain point, but the best data we have goes back pretty far.
0: This is a piece about sort of the uh, suffering and, and annoyances and, and indignities of, of menopause and perimenopause. Wh- what is it that the hormonal treatment was doing uh, to help women? Like, ha- what is it that they were suffering from that they wanted this? And what is it that it, it did to allay their suffering?
5: basically, women, you know, very, very, something like 80% of women who go through um, perimenopause and become menopausal, or postmenopausal experience hot flashes, that is the classic symptom of, um, of of that stage in women's lives. And they also experience night, uh, sorry, night sweats, which is, you know, in addition to being extremely uncomfortable, um, interrupts your sleep. There's all sorts of other perimenopausal symptoms. I mean, they, they, they're, I could go on and on for quite a while, actually. I mean, some women, experience a strange burning sensation in their mouth. A lot of women talk about like so much dryness in their body that their, their nails become brittle, their hair becomes brittle. Um, certainly mood disorders. Some women have um, more severe symptoms of depression during this period of time. Oh, and also there's a lot of discussion of, of brain fog and, and cognitive um, sort of uh, diminishment. That is To reassure everyone tends to be in most women very temporary, but when it's happening to you, it can be very, very alarming and and disturbing, and by the way, inconvenient. and we should all say it together. There's another very common symptom. Let's all say it together. Vaginal dryness. It's a real problem. Genitourinary symptoms that can make sex painful. For some women, if it gets too advanced, it can even make walking painful. Um, So the things we know it it treats most effectively, we know it treats hot flashes. It really, it's the most, hormones are the single most effective treatment for uh, getting rid of hot flashes and night sweats in some women, depression, in some women mood, and and certainly um, genitourinary, menopausal, genitourinary syndrome, which is a mouthful, but much better what they used than what they used to call it, which was vaginal atrophy.
4: So, Sue, you have a, a really, really useful paragraph that gets at the kind of menopausal bl- or perimenopausal blindness that takes place in the culture. And when you said, you know, imagine if this were happening to men, and then you list the p- pretty common... Um, symptoms of or uh, things that women go through in perimenopause as a way of focusing the mind of readers who immediately recognize that the entire world would reorient itself towards fixing this, this issue. And beyond David's point about what hormone therapy helps, I wondered if you could give me your thoughts about two things. One, the stuff that gets um, written down to other things that in fact is probably the... Depression and life changes that are a result of perimenopause. For example, empty nest syndrome. Well, that kind of tends to hit your kids who go off to college. In some cases, a lot of times when women are going through perimenopause, so uh, a woman might think, "Oh man, I'm really you know being affected by their leaving the house." Actually, you're being affected by the depressive symptoms that are consistent with perimenopause, and it gets misdiagnosed. The same thing also felt true about heart disease. Um, that that changes that are going on get written down to heart disease in women and not identified to this, how much better we would be about treating not just with hormone therapy, but you know, marriages and counseling, um, you know, psychotherapy, that would be helpful if this was a part of our conversation about the evolution of women's lives?
5: You know, it's really interesting, because I, I will say, it, this is, so the issue of depression is complicated, I think, because if I'm a gynecologist, and a woman comes to me, and she's not having hot flashes, and she's not having night sweats, and she says to me, I'm incredibly depressed. Um and my medication's not working right now the way it used to all these years, you know, because if she's, you know, sort of close to, um, you know, if she's in her early 50s, let's say, the risk of of taking the hormone, um, the hormones might be fairly low. And so you could say, well, let's let's try it. Let's try this and see if it helps over the next – over the course of the next two or three months if you see an alleviation in your symptoms. But I think a gynecologist might also think – this woman also needs to be evaluated, you know, by a psychiatrist, because it's actually, you know, I think sometimes women do have a a, a gut feeling, but we don't really know what the cause of it is. And if you don't refer to a psychiatrist, and you do just give her, um, say, like, let's try hormones and see how you do. And this woman has some kind of major, you know, um, serious psychiatric episode, you you haven't maybe done your due diligence. So I will, I think it should be part of the conversation. I mean, I guess I do feel like it's my hope from this article that, People like neurologists, if a woman comes to a neurologist now and says, um, I'm experiencing tremendous brain fog, um, that at least will say, like, let me ask you a question. Are you also having hot flashes and night sweats? Okay, so it could be a million different things. But just so you know, it could also be this. Talk to your endocrinologist or your gynecologist. Consider this. Or maybe before we do all these invasive tests, you might want to try a course of, you know, again, if you're young and low risk and you're not, you have no contraindications, A friend of mine um, was going through, you know, it's almost certainly long COVID, and I know she was seeing a battery of doctors, and she's 52. And I just don't think any of them, I mean, I'm pretty sure not one, I mean, she's going to specialists of every kind, and not one of them said to her, by the way, are you taking hormones or have you thought about it? No, that's not to say it would have alleviated anything. It just seems like it should be part of the conversation.
1: Sue. you're laying out a good sense of you know being much more conscious of this in the culture, making room for talking about it and the symptoms, and I think feeling less embarrassed about it. I'm going to confess that I basically just avoided thinking about this for a long time. It just seemed generally unpleasant. Why imagine all these bad things happening to me before they started happening? But now I'm about to be 52, and thanks to you in large part in talking about this piece, I asked my internal medicine doctor for an OBGYN with this in mind, and my internist said, oh, okay, I'll refer you to this particular doctor in New Haven because I know that she's more open to menopausal hormone treat- therapy. That just seems like this important step. Part of that just involves asking for what you want, but I also, in listening to you, feel like, as with everything with the healthcare system, how do you navigate it so that it works out for you? Because, you know, we all face these questions of how to find the medical care that we're actually looking for.
5: Well, I think that does sort of get back to John's question, which is, you know, the NAMS, the the North American Menopause Society, does have a way for you to search for your doctor, uh, search for a NAMS-certified specialist in your area. Um, And I do think that they are what do you want, right? You want a doctor who is incredibly well-versed in the statistics and isn't just going on some gut feeling based on the way that the WHI was rolled out in 2002, you know, or somebody who really listens to you and is not dismissive or doesn't try to tell you like, oh, you're probably just feeling blue because your kids just went to college or your brain fog is just, that's just normal aging, you know, like, you, you know, so much of this is just really... I think um, scouting around until you feel like somebody is actually listening to you and paying attention to you, and and actually is it's funny this idea of being pro-hormone. I think I think people who others would describe as pro-hormone would simply say, "I'm actually trying to put the risks in context so a woman can make the decision." They call there's an increasing trend in medicine called shared decision making, which is. I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm going to listen to what you think. I'm going to hear what your priorities are. How it's affecting your quality of life. Together, we're going to come to a decision. I, you know, hopefully, you feel like you're you've been respected. I feel like I my you know insights have been respected. But it's hard. It's you know, it's not easy. It's not fun to go to the gynecologist. It's not fun to search for a gynecologist. It's none of it's fun.
0: Sue Damas's piece in the New York Times is women have been misled about menopause. Read it. Thanks, Sue. My pleasure. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When uh, you are having a cool drink to uh, take off a hot flash, John, what are you going to be chattering about?
4: I'm not a Star Wars uh, obsessive, um, oh but I God, like that would make like Star you even Wars. more
0: you're in even, even more tiresome more than I am. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
4: No, I think that's a very fair point. Extremely fair. However, I do like a good a good mindless Star Wars story, and I have found that. Um, uh, the Mandalorian and Boba Fett have not really done it for me, but Andor, uh, which is the one uh, I've recently been watching, I quite like. And so I would recommend anybody who lives in that kind of space of of being easily susceptible to a Star Wars story, but still requiring good storytelling, um, uh, plots that aren't obsessed with constant side quests. Um, and uh, so anyway, that's the first thing. The other is um, a website called... I guess Kialo, K-I-A-L-O dot com. Kialo is basically what I have wanted in life for a very long time. It's essentially a Wikipedia for debate. So um, one of the questions on, K- on Kialo at the moment, if that's indeed how you pronounce it, is, is the United States a good country to live in? There are then a series of pro and con propositions about this idea, um, all of which have to be voted on by the community and supported by data. Now, there are flaws as there are in the fumbling progress of human reason in any way, but it is a very useful process for kind of being programmatic in thinking about some political issues in particular there's another one on whether um barack obama you know was a successful president or not and this kylo has a really um useful system for thinking through these things pretty well sourced it's got a community feel and everybody seems to be sort of at least at first blush acting in in you know what we used to have called uh, good faith in these kinds of debates so check it out emily
0: what's your chatter
1: I am recommending a post that one of my kids sent me from the Afghanistan Analyst Network. It's by Sabooon Saman. And this author uh, interviewed five members of the Taliban who are in Kabul. It's like about, you know, normal normal life as a Taliban fighter who has been effectively repurposed. You had to move to the big city. There are women around who might not be wearing, you know, full coverings from head to toe. There's a lot of complaining about return to work policies in this post. You have to show up at the office from like 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. as opposed to living a freer life. That's a big pain, it turns out. And it was just really honestly fascinating. Here is one of my favorite quotes. I sometimes miss the jihad life for all the good things it had. Similarly, in the beginning, I learned for the village, but I've now become accustomed to my new circumstances. In our ministry, there's little work for me to do. Therefore, I spend most of my time on Twitter. We're connected to speedy Wi-Fi and Internet. Many muhajadeen, including me, are addicted to the Internet, especially Twitter. I recommend. (laughs) Keep reading.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh man!
1: <laughs> Thank you, Afghanistan Analyst Network. I mean, honestly, it's fascinating.
0: My chatter first. Uh, I, I need to do some self-promoting chatter, uh, but for your benefit, dear listeners, a few months ago we did a live CityCast DC uh, taping at Politics and Pros at Union Market. It was a huge, great, g- good, fun time. There were lots of Gabfest listeners there, and we're doing it again on Wednesday, March first. CityCast DC, our daily podcast about DC, is going to be live at Politics and Prose at Union Market at 6.30. It's free. I will be there along with our host, Mike Schaefer, Dan Reed, The Washington Post, Lori Aratani. And it's going to be so fun. We had a great taping. We'll talk about new books. We'll talk about DC transportation issues. And I would love to see you there. So come to CityCast DC Live on Wednesday, March 1st. There are uh, we'll, we'll put a link to the Eventbrite in the show notes or email me davidplots at gmail.com or just show up. Honestly, you can just show up. So come then. Also, another quick CityCast thing is that we are hiring two positions, account executives, people who are going to sell sponsorships and ads for CityCast. One is in Denver and one is in D.C. It's an amazing job. You get to help local businesses and organizations get their message out, work with me. Great team. If you do it well, you will make a lot of money and if you like selling media, no podcasting, no newsletters, um, come work with us. So go to citycast.fm slash jobs or email me. All right. My actual chatter is uh, I was at my mother's house, as one is, and one's mother, of course, has books. One's mother is often trying to dispose of books or fob books off on you. And at, I was, <laughs> my mother had a box of books that she was going to do something with, and it had uh, at the top of it was a book turned upside down, so I could see, I could see the, the the blurb on the back, the book description on the back, and it was so exciting that I was just wanted to read it to you. So it's a it's a book called The Brothers Ashkenazi, which turns out to be by Israel Joshua Singer, who is Isaac Basheva Singer's brother, and it was also a very very successful novelist. And it's a novel that was written in 1934. Uh, and it was a, a huge bestseller. It was like at the top of the bestseller list along with Gone with the Wind. And here is the the back cover of the Brothers Ashkenazi. Out of the ghetto. This is all caps, by the way. Out of the ghetto into the world of the stranger. They were the Brothers Ashkenazi. Twins as unlike as day and night. Max, cunning, brilliant, who cast off his Hasidic robes to build a textile empire as the self-anointed king of lots. Jacob, whose passions drove him out of the shtetl into the arms of wealth, luxury, and sensuality, but never close enough to the woman that they both loved, Dinalé, who wanted to be called Diana and had a husband she couldn't abide, a man who had everything but the respect of the only woman he ever desired. Sweeping from the dawn of the Industrial Revolution to the eve of World War II, the Brothers Ashkenazi remains as powerful, passionate, as unforgettable as it was when first published over 40 years ago. I was like, that that is how you write a back cover ad for your book
1: i feel you are mocking our shared cultural heritage
0: i'm not mocking it i'm just like (laughs) i am so (laughs) loving reveling in it the kind of uh, heightened emotion here i i picked it up maybe i'll you read should.
1: It. it reminds me of leon Uris, the author of exodus and mila 18 and lots of other novels of swashbuckling jews and
0: yeah swashbuckling jews that that is that is total swashbuckling jew language there that is you can just see the chest hair on that guy these the brothers ashkenazi's chest hair spilling out fulsomely everywhere listeners you have sent chatter to us please uh continue to do that Continue to do that. You can email them to us at gabfest at or you can tweet them to us at, at slate gabfest. We have gotten a lot of good ones, as always. This week's chatter is from Ryan Clements.
3: I would like to recommend the Outlaw Ocean podcast based on Ian Urbina's award winning book and reporting from a few years ago. It is, at the risk of hyperbole, essential listening for humanity. This is a fascinating and truly frightening account of the relentless exploitation of our oceans and the various forms of life, including our own, that depend on them. Kind of a canary in the coal mine for our collective consciousness, a record of what is actually happening beyond our terrestrial existence and most certainly our laws. This reporting demands that we not look away, as unbearable as it may be,
0: That's our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth and this week by Tori Dominguez, too. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGapFest. and tweet chatter to us there or email it to us at, gapfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Amazing, kind of scary article by Stephen Vladek. Uh, it was in the in the Times. Was it in the Times? In the Times, New York Times. Um, so about judge shopping. Emily, just tell us the the introduce us to the premise of this article, which was fascinating.
1: Yeah. So this is an op-ed by uh, Steve Vladek, and he is talking about the success with which particularly uh, Greg Abbott, the uh, governor of Texas, has been pinpointing lawsuits to particular judges in Texas. So you may, if you're a kind of legal nerd-ish, be familiar with the idea of forum shopping. And that's when plaintiffs in lawsuits look for a particular part of the country or a particular court that they think is going to be sympathetic to their cause. Like, for example, uh, years ago, there were lots of big plaintiff's injury suits that were being filed in a particular southern state. I'm forgetting which one, which is dumb. Thank you. I was going to say Alabama. And and Delaware has these famous courts that are more sympathetic, a whole system, really, of courts that are, a, they're a good place to incorporate because of their law. So that's when you're forum shopping. This is taking it to another level where you're actually shopping for a particular judge. And what's happening in Texas I'll retake the Abbott part in a second. What's happening in Texas is that Ken Paxton, who's Texas' attorney general, is filing tons of lawsuits, knowing that he has 100 percent chance, as Steve Vladek says, of having the case assigned to Judge Matthew Kazmarek. And he was appointed to the bench in uh, 2019 by Donald Trump. And he is especially sympathetic to Paxton's causes. And we're talking about these major challenges to things like the student loan debt relief program and the HHS rules after Dobbs for access to abortion medication. So you line up your super sympathetic judge and then you have at this big federal policy and you hope for a nationwide injunction. Steve explains that the reason that uh, Texas can pinpoint this judge is this odd configuration in Texas where instead of having a federal district court that has different judges in it so that at least you would know that you had like a one in two or a one in four chance or a bigger number, it's actually all of this particular judge in this district. And so once you file the papers there, you know you're going to get him. There's another judge, Judge Tipton in Texas, who's been very sympathetic to the conservative attacks on Biden's immigration policies. Uh, He gets pinpointed. And Steve is basically arguing that this is a form of constitutional hardball. Perfectly legal, but like messed up. Should not be that you can just sort of pick your judge, get the answer you want, and then cause, uh, you know, significant chaos in the federal government. Like maybe you should win on the merits, but that this is a kind of loaded way to try to start the whole process.
0: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.
3: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com.
2: It's my little escape.
3: Now Judy's the life of the party.
2: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
3: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs)